Welcome everybody. Brian and I are joined today um, by our friend and colleague Matt Gowski. Um, Matt Gowski works at Mount Sinai, has a prognostic scoring system named after him, the Gowski criteria, which we're trying doing our best to, to destroy. Well, I am anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and Matt's uh, Matt's got a, a CTDNA study, which is really exciting. We invited him to come and talk to us today about that. But actually, you know, I guess it's somewhat under false pretenses because we actually want to talk about other things, too. Uh, so it's going to be more than just uh, broadcasting your own study, Matt. It's going to be a few other questions around the topic, if that's OK. Um, and also at the end, we might just talk, we might just just touch on some of these issues that are coming up in some of the big neoadjuvant trials and whether ctDNA is going to play a role in those studies. Um, so um, quite a lot to cover. We're going to do it because Brian's getting really funny about the time. He <laughs> keeps telling me I talk too much. I'm anxious already with this intro. <laughs> yeah. I apologise. We'll try not to do it again. Let's make this one work. Um, Matt, why don't we start just talking a little bit about ctDNA and the methodology um, that you, that we're using in urothelial cancer. And let's start on blood and maybe we'll put urine to one side for the time being. Okay, sounds good. So ctDNA, obviously a sort of broad and an ambiguous term. I think in, it, you know, it's interesting that some of the methodologies that are used um, are dependent on where data could be generated from large data sets, and that generally happens in the context of retro, large retrospective analyses uh, from clinical trials that have already been completed. And so that seems to be um, a way to uh, establish a knowledge base around a particular platform, and then that platform tends to be the one that gets used subsequently because the data is already established. And so what I'm referring to specifically is is uh, signatory testing in 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 your your um, analyses that you did both within the context of Abacus and then in Vigor 10. So that that platform, of course, uses a tumor informed approach to ctDNA testing that involves DNA sequencing of the uh, tumor tissue, identifying alterations in that tumor tissue that can then be used to inform a bespoke PCR-based assay to test in the plasma. And in that particular assay, selects up to 16 alterations in the tumor tissue to inform that, that PCR-based approach in the plasma, and then two or more alterations detected in the plasma, sort of the cutoff or positivity or detectability. So you Matt, is that is that bespoke assay, is it is that the best? I mean, is that the gold standard or so, not necessarily? Well, I think that that's that's sort of why I started with the with the caveat that a lot of um, a lot of the use of these assays and subsequent trials and data sets is informed by that initial knowledge base. So we have other bits of data, but we have no head to head comparative data with different platforms. And so I think this is where we have the ro most robust data with a locked in platform, whether or not it's the best. We don't know because there's no head to head, whether or not it's the best from a conceptual standpoint. Um, I think people would argue with that in, in, you know, by best, it really depends on like all biomarkers, you, you know, that fit for purpose concept, right? So what are we using it for? Um, and the, the um, 
the clinical decision that needs to be informed by ctDNA testing is probably going to inform what the best assay is, right? Uh, because if we're looking for minimal residual disease, that might be a different assay than trying to detect cancer de novo. And it also is very much based on the practical considerations, right? How quickly do you need that result to come back? If you're making a neoadjuvant decision, you need the results right away. If you're making an adjuvant decision, you have some time. Matt, this is an informed approach. And there's a more recent um, informed approach, uh, which was um, which has got accelerated FDA approval, um, which, uh, or is it, oh, sorry, spe special designation, I think the right phrase is, which is looking at foundation, a foundation platform using um, the foundation one um, platform and then using the Signatera PCR to uh, identify um, ctDNA in that method. So it's also uh, an informed approach, but it's not performing the whole um, genome sequencing and the 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 germline PCR. Um, it's uh, it's using you know the more widely used Foundation One platform. Clearly, there's issues with clonal heme rapidiosis and other um, forms of um, of false positivities which have been built into the algorithm. It looks quite robust. Do you think that this this other way, the second methodology using Foundation is that something that you think would be attractive or we just don't know yet? I think it could certainly be attractive. Again, we don't have head to head data. But when you think about it, if you're if you're selecting a limited number of alterations in the primary tumor to design your bespoke PCR based assay in the blood, then you don't necessarily need whole exome data to do that. If you can if you can identify a sufficient number of alterations that then you sort of limit the false positivity of testing by setting a threshold for the number that need to be positive in the plasma. So I think it's it's a, an interesting and attractive approach. The other one that I think is really interesting, which is sort of a mix between uh, the um, uh, the the tumor informed versus tumor agnostic approach and this is this is there's data in bladder cancer by the group at our house that's been presented now at a few meetings and this platform uses um this platform is from c2i and this platform uses whole ex whole genome sequencing of both the tumor and the blood so not using a, a tumor informed approach by designing a bespoke panel but just sequencing everything and then letting the computational pipeline sort out what's present in the plasma compared to what's present in the blood. And of course, the benefit of that approach is one, um, you don't have to wait to de develop that bespoke test because you're doing everything in parallel. The other thing is that you get much more information about the blood if you're doing a whole genome of the blood. The downside, of course, is that that's a lot of sequencing to do. So, Matt, mm -hmm. you got this, we got the Signatera approach and the group from uh, the, the Scandinavian group and Lars lead to that group and they did some terrific work in the neoadjuvant chemotherapy setting and they showed it was pretty strongly prognostic uh, and that's with um, you know defined as two or more um, mutations that can be tracked with time um, that's the classic Signatera approach it, that went when we went on and we looked at the effects of that in 010 with immune therapy we showed it was strongly prognostic um, you know, 95% of ctDNA positive patients relapse, where 20, only 20% of ctDNA negative patients relapse post hysterectomy. So, Tom, talk about, talk about more details of the data. That's where I wanted to go next is what data do we have? So 
Oh, okay. I mean, the, the setting for that trial. I think I think most well, people we, know, but just to define it. Well, just before we get there, Brian, we haven't talked about the totally uninformed approaches yet. So there's Garden 360, and um, and I guess before we get there, we ought to you know talk a little bit about that. Um, the uninformed approaches haven't got as much attention in urothelial cancer. I think the reason why that's the case is that the panels haven't been specifically designed for urothelial cancer patients. And there's also a lot of concern as well about false positivity and false negativity. Um, um, Niraj did some work with 360. Uh, we had Niraj on last week in bladder cancer um, and showed that there was quite a strong correlation between um, tumor based DNA alterations and track and and, um, and CT and CT DNA positive positivity. So strong correlation between P53, FGFR, other biomarkers. And, you know, there's, there is a question in urothelial cancer in advanced disease about looking for DNA alterations, particularly for FGFR. Now we have the positive Thor study. Um, so I think just before you know, we, we go into the data on, see, on the informed approach, which I think is causing 90 percent of the attention, I just wanted to highlight that the uninformed approach um, is uh, is something which has data to support it, not in, in the same, currently in the same league as we have for this personalized approach, but may be useful in advanced disease for identification of FGFR alterations. So Matt, question to you, to you in the US, do you use um, any circulating ctDNA to determine FGFR alterations? And if so, which method do you use? Uh, we do, but um, but particularly in settings where we're not able to um, uh, collect adequate tumor tissue to do that testing. And I have an example of that happening just this week where where we used uh, the garden platform because we couldn't recover tissue to uh, to do tumor sequencing. Um, so I think your points are really good on. I do want to point out that some of the so, the, you know, the, the tumor uninformed approach, I think we have to distinguish between tumor uninformed approaches that are really trying to detect MRD versus those that are simply, quote unquote, liquid biopsies seeking to detect the presence of specific molecular alterations to guide treatment. And those assays aren't necessarily the same. The depth of sequencing potentially is different. Uh, and, you know, for the MRD approach, groups are trying to use uh, um, approaches other than just looking for SNVs and, you know, using methylation status, et cetera. So I think those tumor uninformed approaches are coming. Uh, but like you point out, we don't have as robust data. So maybe maybe to just put a wrap on this part of it is there are informed and uninformed approaches. There's probably different utilities in different settings, but it, it's is it fair to say that certainly the methodology is still evolving? Right, we're not at we're not at the final assay. Absolutely. At, at present. Yeah. And, and I would say in bladder cancer, just real quick, you know, the most robust data clearly we have from Signatare. It's it's a test that is commercially available in the United States and Medicare covered in the MRD setting. Um, we have data from Tom uh, and from from other groups as well. There's a very similar approach using a, a platform from Neogenomics. I think it used to be called Inivada, and that was used in um, Michael van der Heiden's uh, Neoadjuvant IPI Nevo study published in Nature Medicine. So they use that platform. And then Lars's group, as you pointed out, Tom used Signatera, but they also have published in bladder cancer on the C2I uh, sort of uh, whole genome platform. 
So Tom, Tom, go into your data now. You started to touch on it, but go into the, you know, the, the SAUs which we just talked about and then, you know, what it showed and maybe what it didn't show. So if you kind of put together um, Lars's data um, in his neoadjuvant GEMSYS cohort in operable urothelial cancer and in VIGA 010, which is adjuvant atezolizumab versus um, observation in, um, in um, um, the, the randomized phase three study, uh, which was negative, and the abacus trial, which was neoadjuvant atezolizumab. If you pull those three studies together, what you get is the following. Uh, you can show that about 60% of muscle invasive urothelial cancer patients using the Signatera assay are positive before cystectomy, and you can get clearance of ctDNA. Um, what that means is, is the identification of two clones or more, or two mutations identifies positivity, and then if you, clearance is zero or one identifiable mutation or trackable mutation, and and that's obviously got issues around it. But if you look at the de definition of positivity, you know, if you, if you look at two, it's by far the most robust in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Tom, um, are you surprised it's only 60% or Matt? I mean, I, I don't know data from other diseases as well, but the number seems a little low to me or not? Well, I think in, I think that we, it's important that to recognize that probably 20% of patients, this is after the TURBT, 20% of patients are probably okay. cured through the TURBT because at surgery, there's no surgery. So, you know, yeah. actually it's, it's quite a, it's quite a provocative position. And one of the issues we're going to have coming up in these big prospective neoadjuvant trials is we've got better and better, I think, at this initial part of urology where we're examining the bladder better, we're cutting the tumour out more accurately. And, we, you know, and using 2000 or 1990 data um, and translating that into the modern era might not be perfect because many of those patients were ctDNA negative and were PATH-CR at surgery. And the question was, you know, were those patients actually cured? How, and, and of course, with the, the treatment, or was it the fact that they never had disease and the TURBT was the curative procedure? Yeah. So I think there, there is a discussion there. Are there any ctDNA data just before and after TUR that go from positive to negative just by TUR? Um, I don't know that. Um, I don't know that. All right, I interrupted you. Go ahead and finish your data. Matt, were you going to say something? I, I was just going to say that, you know, positivity and negativity in the neoadjuvant setting and the pre-cystectomy setting, obviously very different than in the post-cystectomy. It's analogous to a PSA in the setting of a prostatectomy versus not. I mean, there are primary tumors that might shed ctDNA versus not, um, but that primary tumor is still there. But once that primary tumor is gone, then if you detect ctDNA, um, then that's obviously has very different implications. Sure. So what you then have is the, um, and so both atezolizumab and chemotherapy, both associated with about 20% clearance. Um, and then the O10 data tells us about post-hystectomy environment. In the post-hystectomy environment, using the Signatera assay, 40% are still ctDNA positive. And um, if, if, the, if patients are ctDNA positive, the hazard ratio of relapse is about six. So as I said, about 90% of patients relapse who are positive 
about 20% of patients who are negative. There's been some work on the biology of those subgroups of patients who are negative, who relapse, and it looks like they have more luminal type cancers, and they're more locally infiltrative cancers. They don't tend to um, be uh, present with widespread metastatic disease. So there's work to do, obviously, on that subgroup of patients and whether we need to do just deeper sequencing. All those yeah. patients will never be positive. We don't know. And then, of course, the provocative piece of that of that experiment. Remember, this is exploratory data was those patients who were CTDNA positive who got a tezolizumab had a 40 percent reduction in the risk of death. So the hazard ratio was 0 0.6. Also, those patients who received a tezolizumab also had a 20% clearance because we looked at baseline and after a couple of cycles of therapy. So, And those patients that have clearance do exceptionally well. And there was an updated um, analysis of that data set, and which is coming out. It was, it was I think it was ASCO GU, but it's coming out um, fairly soon um, in print. And that essentially shows the same thing, but with longer follow up. The foundation tracker methodology has also been employed on a similar on the same data set. Again, that's also been broadcast and that shows a 36 percent positivity. And it also shows it's strongly prognostic and it also shows it's uh, predictive. The number of samples is slightly lower because, you know, there isn't an infinite amount of tissue. And of course, you've got to do the foundation analysis as well instead of the, uh, the previous um, um, whole exome sequencing. Tom, are there so, certain types of, of mutations that clear with the Tezo versus not? Is, does it get that granular or not? Not really. We, you know we, we don't have that much data on, on that at the moment, but there was hmm. in, in the original publication, there was some subset analysis on looking at some of the TCGA subgroups to see if we could find groups that all specific mutations, um, but we didn't show anything uh, anything conclusive in, in that respect and I think there's still some more work to do there um, so that's the main body and then of course there was um, the work the neoadjuvant work with the uh, the methodology which uh, Mikhail van der Heiden used in his neoadjuvant Ipinevo study Nabucco um, and that also uh, was an informed approach using a different methodology but a very similar principle much less data on this approach and the sample size was um was you know it's a neoadjuvant study again uh, i think it was about 20 patients and it showed similar um results but what it did show is that the and the reason we're not going to talk so much about this today he also looked at um in the urine and the urine results were more confusing in my opinion than the blood results which i thought were much clearer yeah, so we've I got uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the urine, a whole whole nother set of considerations. Very <laughs> interesting to talk about, but maybe we'll we'll park that. Another podcast. Uh, so are there before we I want to get to the trials because we're going to run out of time. But um, are there other big data sets? I mean, it strikes me, Tom, that what you described are the sort of two big data sets. Matt, is there anything else we're missing in terms of, you know, that's we're obviously talking about that new adjuvant adjuvant space, but but there are other settings as well. Yeah, I mean, I think those are the biggest ones, and clearly, in Vigor 10, that analysis dominates this this space, and it's really informed everything that's happened since. So, you know, kudos to Tom and the investigators who did that, because that's really served as the bit. Without that data, you could not design some of the trials that we're going to talk about. Good, good lead-in. So, let's talk about your NCTN trial. 
Um, why don't you just give us the, the design and then, and then Tom, you can also talk about your ongoing trial as well, but we'll start with Matt. So the uh, NCTN trial is being done through the Alliance and, and it goes by the acronym MODERN. Um, and this is a study that enrolls patients with bladder cancer specifically, so not upper tract disease like the uh, prior studies, and we can discuss that. Um, similar pathological eligibility criteria. If someone's had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, they have to have at least pathological T2 or higher disease in their surgical specimen. If no neoadjuvant therapy, they need to be cis ineligible and have pathological T3 or higher disease in their surgical specimen. Everyone gets central signatura testing as part of the study. Uh, as part of screening. Um, and patients who have detectable ctDNA post-cystectomy are randomized to either receive what we consider standard of care nivolumab, so nivolumab monthly for a year, or the combination of nivolumab plus relatlimab, the LAG3 inhibitor. Um, the, that portion of the study, the ctDNA detectable randomization, um, is a seamless two, three, uh, phase 2-3 design. And the phase two portion uses ctDNA clearance as a readout, as an endpoint. And then if that meets the pre-specified threshold, then the phase three has a uh, overall survival uh, primary endpoint. So, so Matt, the hypothesis is lag three inhibition will result in an increased ctDNA clearance. That's right, that's right. Um, and that what, ev what evidence do you have that that's going to happen? What's the data for lag-3 in, um, inhibition in, in urethelial cancer? So we know from um, a couple of analyses, but probably the most interesting one is from the group at Memorial where they did sort of non-biased analysis of flow multi-parametric flow cytometry data in patients with melanoma. And they found in the peripheral blood, they defined a few different amino phenotypes. And one was called the LAG3 positive amino phenotype that comprised mostly CD8 positive, LAG3 positive uh, CD8 cells in the blood. And they showed that that was associated with poor outcomes. And then they applied that to an external validation data set of patients with urethelial cancer treated with immune checkpoint blockade. Very similarly showed that if you had these CD8 positive, LAG3 positive cells in the peripheral blood, that was a very poor prognostic indicator. So it's not direct evidence, Tom, but it's evidence that this is probably associated with poor outcomes. We know that many CD8 T cells co-express uh, uh, upon sort of activation, co-express uh, PD-1 and LAG3. So if you just inhibit the pd one P1 interaction, then perhaps you're not sufficiently overcoming sort of uh, um, tolerance. And, and Matt, what's the delta you're looking for? You know, how much more clearance do you expect in the doublet? Yeah, so I'm I'm in until the until we're officially open, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm gonna hold off on uh on, on that. And lag three is another immune checkpoint. It's uh it's on the surface of T cells. Um, it's involved in MHC class two binding. We haven't had a huge amount of success looking at immune checkpoint combinations to date um, across the board, arguably, although there is data in um, in melanoma with 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 the BMS lag three inhibitor. Mm -hmm. I guess, Matt, this is so this is exploratory. I think that's fair. Um, and and but you're not doing a sort of. You're doing a neat, you're doing it in the you're doing exploratory in the adjuvant setting. Why not look at the combination in third line bladder cancer and see if there's, you know, the, the classic phase two trial looking for response rates? Is this the trial of the future where actually we can identify signals 
earlier in the disease. What's the advantage of doing this rather than the traditional drug discovery program? Yeah, so I mean, it's a good point. A couple of things. One, um, there is combination data from expansion cohorts of phase one studies and phase one B studies. So we know that the drugs could be administered safely in, in patients with advanced urothelial cancer. And of course, there's a host of data and other solid tumors as well. The second is that I, I would argue that there, there's more than just data in melanoma. This is an FDA-approved regimen in, in melanoma uh, based on improvements in time-to-event outcomes in phase three studies. And then the, you know, the adjuvant question versus the third-line metastatic question, I think, is sort of a, both a scientific and a pragmatic question. So there are only a few situations in bladder cancer right now where you can test combinations, immune checkpoint blockade combinations in immune checkpoint blockade naive patients. And that coupled with the fact that arguably some of these regimens will work better in the MRD setting than in the uh, metastatic setting, that's a, um, that's a theory. That's, that's not a fact. Um, but that's, that sort of was the justification for, for going after. Uh, and I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we've had this conversation in kidney cancer as well. I think if we just study these novel checkpoints in very refractory IO refractory patients, we're going to miss signals. I mean, I agree the adjuvant's a tough one, and you're kind of counting on ctDNA to be a faithful readout of that activity, which I think it probably is, but we don't really know. I but I guess this trial will help us find out. What we know from Tom's trial that he pointed out are two important things. One, unfortunately, we know the risk of metastatic recurrence in those patients with detectable ctDNA post-op. So I think you could argue that these are patients who we definitely need an escalation approach. Mm -hmm. um, the second is that, as Tom pointed out in his study, ctDNA clearance was very much associated with improved time to event outcomes, too. So if you believe that a higher rate of clearance is associated with better outcomes than a drug that causes that theoretically would be associated right. with better outcomes. And there's, a, there's another arm, just describe yeah. that briefly in the ctDNA yeah. negative. So, so the other randomization is for the patients who have undetectable ctDNA, and there we're randomizing patients to, again, what we would consider standard of care adjuvant nivolumab, uh, so monthly for a year, versus no initial treatment with surveillance and the initiation of nivolumab only in patients who have conversion from undetectable to detectable ctDNA. And um, in that uh, is a, um, uh, has a primary endpoint of DFS, that, that arm. Okay, Matt, so a couple of problems. Number one, how many patients go from negative to positive? Um, so we, we know that from a couple of, uh, of data sets, including from yours. Um, and, and so that's why that arm is a much larger arm. Um, uh, but that it's not many patients, is it? Uh, well, uh, you know, ar arguably 20% of patients are expected to have metastatic recurrence. And, and remember that you didn't use serial ctDNA testing in Invigor 10. You have one time point. Um, yeah. and, and we're so doing that in Invigor 11. And we can yes. talk about that in a second because it's quite important. But in the in the data sets from Lars and others, you know, all virtually all those patients who develop metastatic recurrence after cystectomy have detectable ctDNA first. The lead time was, I agree with that. In the lead time was like four to six months. So if you believe that 20% of that arm uh, is going to develop recurrence, then 20% of that arm will convert from negative to, to positive. So if we I'm could spare if we could spare 80% of patients treatment and lead to the same outcomes that that would be, I, I 
we we feel a success. And Matt, is there a chance that ctDNA could replace conventional um, um, CT imaging in this setting if it's more accurate? And because you know, it's my feeling. Although I think the number of patients who relapse ctDNA negative patients who relapse is relatively modest. You know, CT imaging the relapses tend to occur later. And, you know, I think ctDNA may be more accurate. Do you think we might convert to ctDNA monitoring rather than radiology monitoring? Or is CT monitoring here to stay forever? No, I think, you know, less frequent or risk adapted um, radiologic surveillance. You're absolutely right. I think that's a thing of the of the future. And that's that the related cool part question. About some. Quick, Tom, related question. How will you handle discordant CT and ctDNA results? in the trial, right? Because I assume we'll get them at the same time point. So if the CT scan shows some enlarged lymph nodes, but they're ctDNA negative or vice versa, I guess. Yeah, so the ctDNA is more frequent time points than the than the radiographic surveillance. Um, and if patients have detectable alter or if patients have abnormal imaging, then per protocol, we spell out sort of the steps that one would want to do, which is very similar to standard of care. I mean, generally the principle is to biopsy first metastatic yeah. recurrence, right? Um, Matt, obviously there's controversy around giving nivolumab to ctDNA negative patients generating, generated by the Invigor 010 data, where the hazard ratio for atezolizumab in that biomarker negative group was 1.12. So um, how do you feel about, you know, obviously it's an experiment and it's a valid question. It's a question. Is it a valid question? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it, it would be wrong to do the opposite. Um, so we have a prospective phase three trial that met its primary endpoint, Checkmate 274. And so informing standard of care of patients based on a retrospective analysis of Invigor 10, I, I don't think is the right thing to do. I think we have to prove that uh, de-escalation of treatment is appropriate based on the level of evidence rather than prove that uh, treatment is uh um, is indicated in those patients. And for those of you listening, you want to hear me, Matt and me argue about um, adjuvant treatment in your This could be a session at our, our live half, meeting. I'm, I'm seeing it come together. Half a dozen podcasts. He hasn't even brought up overall show. survival from 274. Like, <laughs> I've moved on. It's amazing. I've, <laughs> I've moved on from that. I've emotionally moved on from that. I have other things right. to do now. I've moved on. All right, Tom, we're running I'm, up on time. Last last question from you, and then I have one. Um, so, so Matt, um, the, uh, the the last question for me is: This is a novel way of looking at the disease. You're doing what I think is a bit of drug discovery and some development in this space. Um, is there are there other um, are there other trials that we should be doing with similar design? How long will this trial take for those people with, you know, those investigators at home sitting down thinking I'm going to design a trial like this? Now, is this a, a huge undertaking? Because it's quite easy to do a single arm, you know, 30 patient third line bladder cancer trial with combinations. This sounds like, you know, a 10 year project or a five year project with 500 with 200 sites. Now, how big is this undertaking? Yeah, I mean, I think this sort of study could only be done through the cooperative group setting or or on networks like that. Um, so this this is a big study. It's a it's a phase three study. And essentially it's two phase three studies in one. 
Um, but I think based on the, the data that you've generated that 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 defined the key adjuvant questions of of the present, right? Um, can we escalate treatment in patients who need it? Can we de-escalate treatment in patients who don't need it? Those are the key questions. And instead of playing around with, you know, some single arm data sets, and um, I think we, we have to answer those questions to move the field forward. So Matt, my last, I guess, comments and question, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is a great trial. I think we need to do more of this across malignancies where we're escalating or de-escalating based on a biomarker. And in this case, ctDNA and maybe other biomarkers and other diseases. What, maybe I'll ask but for both of you to finish this out, in what year do you think ctDNA will be either part of an FDA label or routine? We're doing it all the time, in, let's say in the adjuvant setting or in any setting, I suppose, where we say, yeah, of course, I can't, you know, of course we're doing it in all patients, just like, I don't know, we do other things in all patients now that we didn't before. What, what calendar year is that? So uh, I don't know about the FDA label um, question. Um, I think that that's of course a hard one to answer. But regarding the other question, I mean, my my concern honestly is that depending on the region that you are in the world, this testing is already happening and it's happening routinely and it's happening frequently. And my concern, like like has occurred with some other technologies in medicine, that we put the cart before the horse. And um, you know, we need to answer these questions to establish clinical utility before we're just using these tests in clinical practice and everyone's interpreting them differently and using them differently. Yeah, totally agree. Tom, what do you think? What year is this routine and or part of a label? Well, we haven't talked about Invigor 11 yet, and Invigor 11 is probably, um, you know, it's probably a, the most important qu question that's in, in inoperable urethelial cancer right now, in my opinion, um, that, you know, there are neoadjuvant trials coming up. I think they're really important. But if Invigor 11 is positive and the, the trial is basically almost a rerun of Invigor 10, but in ctDNA positive patients. So it's the validation right. of Invigor 10. It's a prospective randomized phase three study with um, disease free survival as the primary endpoint. Patients are screened for ctDNA positive. Those positive patients are then randomized to a tezolizumab or placebo. The negative patients, as in MAT study, are tracked. If they go from negative to positive, they can then take part in the trial, which I think is neat. And so you're either those patients who are positive post-surgery or indeed who become positive are then randomized. We've enrolled, we've enrolled 70 percent of the population. We only need 30 percent more. It's an incredibly difficult trial to do. It's got over 200 sites globally. And there are various people in Roche who are doing a huge amount of work. Viraj, for example, and others, huge amount of work to make this trial successful. It's a study which... Um, if positive, would, um, I think, define this from a global perspective. At the moment, we're giving too many patients who don't need adjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy, um, and the details about whether that should be a tezolizumab or nivolumab is a discussion for a different day. I'm happy to have a debate now. So that, but that could be but in, just, in a couple of years, right? Well, yeah, it's 70 percent recruited, disease-free survival not a million miles away. We've got a, a randomized phase three exploratory analysis. If we validate it prospectively, I think it's, you know, that would be as robust an analysis as you can do. And under those circumstances, I would imagine it would be adopted. The question would be, what then happens to those current trials that are running that give perioperative therapy, you know, neoadjuvant, chemo plus 
Duvalumab, Niagara, and then adjuvant um, Duvalumab. If they're CTDA negative post-surgery, you know, what do we do with those patients? And it becomes more complicated. And therefore, as a single study, it would define this field. And I think it would solve Matt's cart before the horse problem. And then we can say, OK, this technology works and therefore we need to be picking patients. So, Tom, One, as much grief as you've given Matt about OS and Checkmate, you chose DFS for this trial. Yes. So it's so it's really hard. to. We will look at OS as well. Um, we this trial is incredibly hard to recruit to because in Europe there's a label for nivolumab for nivolumab and the positive patients. So it's can't recruit in Europe. In the US, because nivolumab is a standard of care, you can't recruit. It's very hard to do that. That, um, you know, we won't have the debate now about the merits of nivolumab in this setting. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, please. <laughs> um, but, thanks, for, thanks for pointing that out. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but so, we, you know, what we're hoping to see, what I'd like to see in this trial is a clear, significant DFS signal. I'd like to see a similar OS signal as in the um, like, in 010. So I think OS is really important, but it's um, you know, but we're not going to be able to recruit 700 patients into this trial. It's just it's just we've got 220 sites and we just can't do yeah. it. Right, Matt, did you want the final word? I felt you. No, I think you already <laughs> had it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great discussion, gents. Matt, thanks for joining us. Sounds like a lot. A lot to come, both clinical data, you know, and methodology development. But congrats on that trial. I think it's a great trial. We look forward to participating for sure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, all. Hey, thanks, and bye. Thanks. Bye.